at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And so I invite you to hear these words. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. And the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, Ruling in the fear of God is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the godless are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be picked up with the hand. To touch them, one uses an iron bar or the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed in fire on the spot. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this day, a day to be together outside and to see the trees the beauty of the greenness of the grass, the clouds above, the momentary light of the sun, the warmth of your spirit, and being with sisters and brothers in Christ. And we give you praise for all of these things. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth this morning, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So earlier this week, I was uh, out and about, and a, uh, one of our covenant children, an, an elementary-aged uh, uh, kid, came up to me, and we uh, exchanged some nice pleasantries, and then he got to the crux of the conversation. This is what he really wanted to ask me about. He said, uh, Pastor Jerry, how much longer are we going to be talking about King David? And I said to him, well, you, because it seems clear, you are ready to be done with this. And I get it. I said, this, you're in luck. This is going to be the very last Sunday that we are talking about David. We've been talking about David, it seems, for quite some time. And hopefully by now, you know a lot more about David than we did back in January. The story of David is a remarkable story. It started back in January with uh, the prophet Samuel, as you may recall, who went to the family of Jesse. And much to our surprise, we began to see the surprising ways in which God worked, how he, he, he asked for David, the one who wasn't even there, because it was going to be David who was going to be the king of Israel. And then before you know it, all of a sudden we see David and Goliath. And what we talked about there, of course, was that David was so steeped in, in God because of his time out in the pastures and his time of, of, of seeing how God could work, that whenever he saw Goliath, he saw the giant, but it wasn't all he saw. Because he had this God-sized vision because he believed. Do you remember the rocks, what they said? We believed in the living God. And so all of a sudden, this thing that brought such great fear to everyone else, when David saw Goliath, he saw it through a God-sized vision. 
We saw the story of David and Jonathan. We talked about the importance of these intimate personal relationships that we have and the way in which they help us to grow and the ways in which those reflect the love of God. We saw, of course, beautiful Abigail. Remember that when she went and she interrupted what David was going to do when he was going to go and attack Nabal. And we talked about the importance of beauty, the beauty of God, the beauty of creation, how it slows us down and it causes us to be able to appreciate who God is and to make sure that we're seeing life through the lens of God and not just our own self and oftentimes our own rage. We saw, of course, the story of David and Mephibosheth. Remember him? He was the son of Jonathan with whom David had had a covenant. And so he went and he, he made sure to find Mephibosheth. And it was this reminder to us of the importance that all of us know that we are named, that all of us know that we have not been forgotten. But the longer that we study David, what we've also begun to discover, and we spent several weeks on this, is we realized that David was not flawless, that David had many imperfections. We had the story, of course, of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, and the reminder to the fact that how many leaders, especially oftentimes it seems church leaders are imperfect and we need to be able to be honest about that reality. And we need to make sure that those who are oftentimes victims, that they are heard in the midst of this and not ignored as so often they seem to be. Then we're reminded when the prophet Nathan goes and approaches David and tells him that story, we were reminded of how easy it is for us to see the sin of others. David did not see this sin, or at least not quickly. He didn't see his own sin, but he easily saw how others sinned. We self-deceive with great frequency. But of course, what we also discovered at that time was that David did not deny it. Instead, David confessed without caveat. And the challenge it is for so many of us, whenever we confess, we want to say, yeah, but, but here's the reason why, or we want to deflect. But David was able to simply confess. But of course, as we also then discovered that just because we confess, just because we're forgiven, it doesn't mean that there aren't longer term consequences for our brokenness. And we begin to discover in the life of David how all of a sudden his family, it seems, begins to be disrupted by brokenness and dysfunction. We remember the pain of that. And it kind of comes to a head when his son Absalom decides to rebel against David. Absalom wants David dead. But then there's another twist, as we talked about on Mother's Day, if you were here when we remembered, when we saw in David this incredible love that he had for Absalom, that David never gave up hope, even when his son wanted him dead, that David never stopped hoping. He never stopped hoping that there could be restoration. And we talked about the importance of remembering that this is like God's love, that no matter what you might be going through, no matter what you might have done, that God will never give up on you. And then throughout this whole series over these last four months or so, we've sprinkled in some psalms which give us this remarkable view and glimpse into the heart of David. 
One of those that we talked about was the 145th Psalm. That was when we talked about this remarkable tapestry. Remember this tapestry of God's kingdom. And we said in the midst of that, that, that wherever you are on this tapestry here on this side, that what you need to realize, of course, is that you're connected to the person who told you about God and that that person's connected to someone before them and before them. And as you keep going back, you eventually, of course, reach uh, Jesus. And then if you keep going back, you, you reach David, but it's this importance of always remembering that our faith is connected with those who have gone before us. Now, I want to take a, a brief moment, actually, just to pause for one second in this, because I've been thinking about that a lot this week. There's been a couple things that have happened this week that have made me think about this tapestry and how we're connected with those who have gone before us. Uh, one of those was on uh, Tuesday. We had a funeral for Lavelda Lewis and, and, and Lavelda was one of our charter members. So she was here back in the, in the early to mid 80s. And one of the things that we're realizing is that we are losing a lot of our charter members as they grow older, of course. And so I actually wanted to create a space. As I think about this tapestry and I see ZPC, I was reminded of some of those charter members. So I'm wondering if there are any charter members who are still here now and are here this morning. I know we have some. I don't know if they're here this morning or not. If there is, will you please stand? A few sprinkled here and there. And I want to thank you for your vision long ago to join this when this looked much different than it does right now, right? I, there were actually horses and carriages, I believe, that were going on Michigan Road. Now, the other thing I also want to point out when it comes to this tapestry, of course, is I want to go back to the food pantry because that's been around for 32 years. And I think it's remarkable the ways in which that so many have served over the years. And so here's what I want to ask. I want to ask if you have ever been a part of the food pantry. And by that, I mean, if you've ever given money or if you've ever volunteered, whatever it is that you have done, will you please stand now so that we can just kind of see how many folks here have done something with the food pantry over the last three, uh, almost three and a half decades. So one of the things that we can never forget, of course, is how we are so connected, right, to those who have gone before us, to those who have gone around us. And we're reminded of this, of course, in the story of David as we talked about the 145th Psalm. Now, all of that brings us to today's scripture, which, uh, which says that it is David's last word. So I just want to spend just a few more minutes just talking a little bit about this passage today. David's final words. It begins, of course, by saying, David, son of Jesse. Now, that could have just been there to kind of be a descriptor for which particular David this is, but uh, Eugene Peterson, and you knew there's no way I'm going to go through uh, uh, one without uh, David or Eugene Peterson bringing him up one last time. Eugene Peterson says that this is more than just a descriptor. It is a sign that all spirituality begins in biology. In other words, that all faith begins in one simple fact, which is this, that David was a human being. In other words, David was not a superhero. He was not supernatural. David was not the son of Thor. David was the son of regular old Jesse. There was nothing especially superpowered about 
David. He did not have a halo. He didn't have wings. There was nothing like that. He was simply David. And David's spirituality simply was born out of the fact that he was a human being, which is important for us to remember. Because one of the things that we talk about here is the fact that all of us, of course, by and large, as far as I know, all of us are human beings. Amen? Which means that all of us in some way, of course, are uniquely crafted for this work of God. It's not because of the fact that we have anything, if you will, that is super powered about us. It is the fact that it always begins with the fact that we are human. I, and I love those bells. I don't love them right now, but I love those bells usually. Now, not only are, was David human, of course, but David was also, we're told, what comes next is that David was anointed. And that's also significant for us because that means simply this. It means that what made David unique in any way was not David, it was God. That God was the one who was uniquely anointed David. Now, here's what I want to say. None of us, as far as I know, are anointed to be the king of Israel. I do not believe that that is the case. But I do know that all of us in some ways have been anointed by God to do something, set apart by God to do something unique. And one of the things that this means, of course, is that God is the main actor. We believe that strongly as Presbyterians and as Christians, which is the fact that God is the main actor, not any of us. Which brings us, though, to this next point, which is that while God is the main actor, God always is determined to use us as humans. But what God understands as well is that all of us as humans are remarkably flawed. If, again, if we go back to the life of David, what we realize is that he was remarkably flawed. And what happens is that the longer that we begin to get to know David, the more that we begin to see his imperfections. If you learned about David when you were a child, by and large, mostly what we see are those remarkable things that David has done. But the longer that we get to know David, the more that we begin to see all of his imperfections and his flaws. And it would be easy oftentimes for us in the midst of those imperfections and flaws to give up on David and say, well, this is not really who we wanna have as any kind of spiritual hero. And I certainly understand that. But one of the things that we need to realize is that as our faith matures, we will oftentimes begin to see more of the flaws and the brokenness in people like David, but also in ourselves. You might think that the longer you are a Christian, the more likely you are to see less and less of your own sin and brokenness. But the truth often is that the closer you get to the light of Christ, the more you see some of your own selfishness, some of your own pride, some of our own egos and our own struggles. And it's not because all of a sudden those things just appeared. It's because the closer you get to understanding Jesus, the closer you get to that light, the more that the light inside of you begins to shine, the more you begin to see that. I was uh, thinking about that several years ago when we got new lights put in the sanctuary. You may remember this. There were more of them and they were brighter. And, and the guy, John, who was going to kind of be in charge of putting the lights in, he said to me, you need to, be care you need to know this that as soon as you put in all of those lights, people are gonna start complaining about how dirty the carpet is. 
And he was right. And the reason, of course, for that is not because as they were putting in light, you know, the staff was going in and putting dirt in on the carpet. No, it's because of the fact that the brighter it got, all of a sudden you began to see more easily what was already there. You began to see more easily all the dirt and the brokenness. And this is the same thing that happens as you grow in your faith, as you get closer to the light of Christ. The truth is you begin to see some of those flaws. You begin to see more of those imperfections. It is good to get closer to the light of Christ, but it can also be incredibly sobering. But now here's what makes David incredibly unique, it seems to me, was that David knew that he was flawed. He knew it. We see it throughout the Psalms. You see it when he confesses. He knows that he is flawed. But oftentimes what we do when we know our own imperfections is that we either act like they're not there or more often what we do is say, well, we can't really do much for God now because we're so flawed, right? And so we say, well, we're gonna wait at least six months until the last sin. And once we reach that point, then we'll start serving God. Then we'll start doing great things for the Almighty. And you know what never happens? That's six months. You never reach that six months, at least few of us that I know of who say, oh, okay, I've not ever sinned. Now I can do something amazing for God. You see, David doesn't do that. We see it in this Psalm. He says, I speak for God. You see it in, this, in the uh, chapter we did last week on uh, 2 Samuel 22. He begins to say these kind of great things that he thinks that he can do for God. David never says, I need to wait Six months, I need to wait. I need to act like I don't have those flaws. No, David is remarkable because he believes even in the midst of his brokenness and pain and his sin, he believes that God still wants to do something through him for God's kingdom. And the reason he believes that is because of what he says in this passage, which is the fact that he knows that God has made a covenant with him. That God has made a covenant with him. And here's what we know a covenant is. A covenant, one person has said, is an arrangement that includes us, but that is not dependent on us for its validity. In other words, the covenant was made by God, and it was made by God with David, which meant that it wasn't up to David as to whether or not he was ever gonna be good enough to do amazing things for God, that God was committed to working through David to do remarkable things. It's one of the reasons why I love infant baptism because Canaan, right, who I'm sure in many ways is a perfect child, is also not perfect in many ways as well, amen? Not everyone has to say amen, just at least the parents, grandparents. But Caden has no idea what he's doing, right? At this point, Caden has no idea. And yet, God said, I am reaching down and making this covenant with water, with baptism that says, you are my child. And it is this beautiful reminder that before we can do anything for God, that God says, I am reaching down and I am claiming you as my child. That doesn't mean that Caden will never do anything for God, but it says it always begins with what God has done for us. But now here's the wonderful thing. Because of that reality and because it is about what God is doing for us, it then the covenant invites us to participate. As I said, it's not like, well, I gotta keep waiting, you know, until everything is okay and then I will do something for God. No, no, no. It says with that covenant right now, you in the midst of your flaws, in the midst of how 
feeble you are, you can do things for God. You can participate in God's coming kingdom. And that is a blessing in so many ways. God, for some reason, has chosen not to bring about the kingdom of God without humans. I do not know why. I cannot explain it. We are imperfect. God could have done this in a much easier way. But God said, I am going to use flawed people just like David in order to further the kingdom of God. And what I want to end with today is this reminder of what that kingdom of God is like. Because that's what we see in verse 5, I think, of this particular chapter. It's easy to overlook it, but it simply says this. It's beginning to describe what is it like to have a godly ruler. And it says basically that it will look like this. It will feel like this. It will feel like the light of morning. Like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. What does that mean? In an agrarian society, basically it means this is perfect. You're going to have sun. You're going to have rain, which means your crops can grow. It means that your livestock have something to drink, that they'll be able to grow so that you have something to eat. In other words, it's describing this reality when there are no more hungry, when there are none who thirst. And if we want to continue it, it's a world where there is peace, where there is no more strife, no more war, no more pandemic, no more pain, all of those things. He says, David says, this is what it looks like. This is what the coming kingdom of God looks like. But when we look around, the truth is, of course, is that we oftentimes do not see that or feel that because we know our own brokenness and we know the brokenness of the world that is around us. And the truth is, and please hear me, it, was, it is easier, it is more convenient, it is more rational, it is more realistic even to say that that kind of vision for God's coming kingdom is a pipe dream, that it is an opiate for the masses, that it is an unreachable hope. But the truth, of course, is it is somewhat foolish to believe that these things can change. It is foolish to believe the reality that we can change. It is foolish to believe that the world can change. It is foolish to believe that any of those things can happen. And what I want to close with today is to say this, that we can decide that we would prefer to be rational and convenient and realistic or we can decide that we actually want to lean into the foolishness of God's kingdom. I want to suggest this, that as we begun to look at the life of David, it is foolish in many ways to think that our spiritual hero is someone as flawed as David. It is foolish for us to believe that a small rock can kill a giant like Goliath. It is foolish for us to believe that God would want to ever use an adulterer and a murderer to further his kingdom. It is foolish to believe, like David did, that he was going to continually love his son who wanted him dead. It is foolish to believe that life is going to come about because of the death of a cross. 
It is foolish to believe that a movement like ours called Christianity would begin with a group of disciples who were fickle in their faith, who were selfish and impatient. And a group of people like you and like me, it is foolish to believe that God would want to use a people like us. And yet, and yet, it is exactly those kind of foolish people who God calls to participate in the life-changing kingdom of God. What I want to suggest to you today is that there are enough rational and sensible people around us who will tell us that the way things have always been are the way that they always will be. That there are enough rational people who will tell us that what we see is all there is. There are enough realistic people who will tell us that we should just simply eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But I would suggest that what this world needs are more godly Fools. I would suggest to you that what this world needs are more foolish people just like you and just like the person next to you. Foolish people who every single week on Sunday mornings, they gather together in order to admit to the fact that they are human and that they are flawed and that they are imperfect. I have said this many times to you. Where else can you go where when you go there, people will tell you that you probably messed up this week? And if I say, hey, I got a great news, we can all gather together and admit to the fact that we are broken and human and we can't do everything and we don't have everything together, who is going to come to that meeting? Foolish people, amen? That we are a foolish people who two years ago believed that in some way God could turn, as I've said, parking places into holy spaces and who could come in a place like this in the midst of a ravaging pandemic, in the midst of death and fear and destruction and say that there is no place, not even a parking lot, there is no place that cannot be made holy when people gather and begin to sing of the grace and the love of God, that it is a foolish people who would say, we are going to give up of our time and our energy and our money to begin to feed people. The thing is, as soon as you feed someone who's hungry, as we've done with the food pantry in another week, you know what they are? They are hungry again. It is a foolish people who say, we are going to come week after week after week. We could be doing lots of other things, but we have decided that we are going to come week in and week out, and we are going to continue to feed. And not only that, but we have decided that we are going to set apart a space of our parking lot. We're going to give a million dollars to say, we want a people who have their own building, their own space, so that they can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have not been forgotten, that they are loved. What you begin to know if you've worked in the food pantry is that everyone has a name and the people who work there, they know that person's name and they pray for them and they look over the prayer request and a group of people pray for them every week. People they may never even meet again, the prayer group, but they know that they are named and loved and it is a foolish people who say, we're not just going to say, oh, well, you know what? They're hungry. Somebody will pay for them. It is a foolish people who say, we're going to come every single week. We are going to build a place so that people know that they have not been forgotten and that they are loved. There are enough 
non-foolish, rational, and sensible people in the world. And if you want to find them, I promise you, you can find them with great ease. But what I want you to know this morning is that I am delighted to be a part of a people who are not afraid to admit just how foolish they are. I want you to know that I am delighted to be a part of a group who is not afraid to look at a spiritual hero like David and see how flawed and foolish he is and still say God worked through him. I am delighted to be a part of a group of people who say, yes, we know that our pastor is foolish, but we still love Scott anyways. <laughs> and Jerry. I want us to lean into the foolishness of God just as David leaned into the foolishness of God and said, yes, Yes, I'm an adulterer. Yes, I'm a murderer. But I believe that God can still work through somebody like me. And God, what I want you to know is God continues to work through fools. Why? Because it is simply who God is. And God has decided to use the foolish to confound the wise and the rational. Because it is through fools in which the kingdom of God will come. This is simply who God is, and it is what God does. And so on this morning, after four and a half months of staring and getting to know the foolishly flawed David and the ways in which God works through this incredibly human person, my hope and my prayer today is that you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are likely a fool and that that is a beautiful thing because God uses fools to further his kingdom. Amen? And with that, let us pray. God, we are fools for you. Lord, we have learned much about David over these last four and a half months. But I pray, Lord, that what we have most understood is that David was remarkably human, that he taught us the reality that though we may be flawed and imperfect, that your covenant is with each of us as humans. And though we may not understand why, that you have chosen not to work without us, but to work through us, even as foolish as we may be. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to lean into that reality knowing that your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven and that it comes through the hands and the feet of a foolish people whom you love, whom you have named, and through whom you work. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.